Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. I'm delighted to be joined today by Monica Masonda. She's Chief Executive Officer of Java Foods, a company she founded. Java Foods produces food and retails food in Zambia. No ordinary food, as she'll tell us in a moment. The company is responsible for some, some leading brands. She hasn't always been an entrepreneur. For some time, she was a lawyer. She qualified as an English solicitor and a Zambian advocate and spent the early stage of her career working for the Attorney General in Zambia. She then practiced with Clifford Chance in London and Edward Nathan in Johannesburg, where she became a partner. And then she joined the International Finance Corporation in Washington, D.C. And then when I first met you, I think, Monica, you were at the Dangote Group. Yes, I remember it very well, in fact, in, in Lagos. You were Director of Legal and Corporate Affairs for, for the Dangote Group, and you were involved in that huge listing at the time, that $13 billion listing on the Nigeria Stock Exchange. And you returned home to Zambia in 2012, I think I'm correct in saying, and you set up Java Foods. So that's a little potted history. I know that You've been celebrated as a young leader, both by the World Economic Forum and by the Archbishop Desmond Tutu Leadership Programme. You've been named in various magazines as one of Africa's leading young businesswomen. So I'm delighted to be joined today by, by someone who I've known for a long time, but haven't spoken to for a few years now. So it's a real pleasure to, to have the opportunity in front of an audience to reconnect. Hi, Monica. Hi, thank you so much for having me and uh, walking me down memory lane. And you're so right. I mean, I think we met, it's probably now 13, 14 years ago when I was in Lagos, when I was wearing a very different hat and trying to learn about communications. So you taught me a thing or two. Very generous. <laughs> well, in, both in the Southern Hemisphere, I'm in Habaroni when you're in Lusaka, I think. That's right. So take us back to the early years. Why did you want to be a lawyer? Yeah, so I think it's just one of those things where People see the strengths in you. My parents saw very much, I was very, I don't want to say mouthy, but I always had an opinion. I was always very quick to engage people. And everyone was like, are you going to be a lawyer? And of course I said, yeah, I would. And it went very well. I went to law school, qualified, and then had a really interesting career, um, spanning over 16 years in many different countries as a lawyer. And it was a great time. I, I really enjoyed it. You didn't think about being a politician. No one said you should be a politician. I left uh, Zambia for my first job after I worked for the Attorney General in London in 1996. So it never crossed my mind to be a politician. And it still doesn't cross my mind. So you left your job at the Dangote Group and you returned home to Zambia That's with right. a vision to set up on your own. Yeah. And really interesting. I think 
working in Nigeria and working for the Dangote Group really opened my eyes to the opportunities. Um, I had always been a lawyer, always seen myself as a lawyer, but then living in Nigeria and seeing that, you know, entrepreneurship was a very viable option, but really felt that I would have wanted to do it at home, in my home country. And uh, this is a country I hadn't lived in for quite a while, but really felt that in order to create impact, in order to really do something meaningful, I would be much better off if I did it in my home country. And that kind of pushed me to come home. Definitely working in Nigeria opened my eyes to different opportunities, also gave me a lot of courage. You just find yourself in a different space. So that's how I came home. I came home very uh, invigorated to do something different from the law. I didn't at the time know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to take advantage of opportunities who were in Zambia. And Zambia is a very interesting country, very strong in the mining sector, but also very strong agriculturally. I mean, we grow a lot of uh, the food in Southern Africa. Sometimes we're called the breadbasket of Southern Africa. Very strong in maize, wheat, soya bean, CR yields year on year, just growing. However, it stops there and there are very little processing done after the crop is grown. And so I thought to myself, therein was an opportunity to actually be part of a growing food processing industry here in Zambia, taking advantage of much of the local raw materials that we could and creating affordable and nutritious foods. And also really changing the way things are done. I mean, Zambia, like many countries in Africa, is a net importer of foods, despite the fact that they grow a lot of food. And that is still the case even today. So we have a lot of work to do. The opportunity is immense. As you know, we have lots of mouths to feed. And Africa, the population is growing immensely. And the question is, what are people going to eat and what can they afford to eat? And have you always had an interest in food and agriculture? So no, I didn't. As I said, it was really looking around me, opening my eyes to see what the opportunity was. I mean, it would have it would have been interesting if I would love to say I would have done something in the digital space or in tech. But yeah. at that time, Zambia was perhaps not on a strong footing for digital and tech. And we just didn't have advantage of it. If I lived in a Kenya or maybe a Ghana, Nigeria, it would have maybe a different offering. But I really saw the opportunity to do some import substitution in terms of food. And I thought it's a ready market for us. It might not be as difficult. I thought it was not, it was not going to be as difficult, but it was difficult. <laughs> so it wasn't yeah. that I had a passion for food. It was the opportunity that first presented itself to me. So tell us about the journey. You, you arrive home in what year is it? 2012? Well, 2012. I do a business plan, of course, because I've come from that very desk type environment and I have lots of MBA friends and they say, yeah, you have to do a business plan. I spent six months writing a business plan. And then someone said to me, gosh, you're wasting a lot of time. Why don't you just start? And I started, I mean, because, you know, you can put in lots of numbers and you can assume a lot of things about the market, about pricing, but you would only know once you start. And true to the word, the business plan was completely wrong. And I made a lot of assumptions, which I would have Maybe if I had started off, I would have been known differently. <laughs> and um, there are lots of things we learned just by, by doing. I, again, I didn't have the background. I had no background in manufacturing, in food processing, and I had not lived in Zambia for many, many years. So I came from zero or maybe even negative. But the point is, is that you're, and I say this to everyone, you're, if you're a learner, you, the market will teach you and you yeah. just have to be persistent about it and you know, just keep, be resilient. And we've grown, we've learned, we've lost, you know, but we are, we're still here. Well, congrats. You're more than still here. Well, your first product was noodles, wasn't it? And they're still going strong, I understand. Yeah, they are. In fact, 
We are a market leader in Zambia. It's the leading noodle brand here, but we're also export into Zimbabwe and into Malawi. And let me just share a really interesting fact, right? So Zambia grows a lot of wheat. I mean, we're very, very strong in wheat production, but also in the region, also outside of Zambia, there isn't another instant noodle manufacturer except in South Africa, right? So in South Africa, you have five manufacturers. Outside of South Africa, you have none. So it is a great opportunity for Java as we grow. Uh, as I said, we export into Malawi, into Zimbabwe. We're looking at Botswana. We're just trying to tie up a distribution agreement. We're looking at the DRC market as well. And the opportunities there, it's um, young populations, not a lot of income, looking for you know, convenience foods, uh, something to keep them going. And I think the noodle brand has done very well to answer some of those, those problems. But we also do fortified cereals. We kind of pivoted a little bit from convenience into nutrition in 2015, where we now focus on uh, nutrition. We try to manufacture as much as possible nutritious foods. And we do fortified cereals. And so when we say fortified, we do add in vitamins and minerals, particularly what's lacking in our society. So like things like vitamin A. So we make sure that is in there and uh, calcium and things like that. And uh, it's not just for babies, it's for everyone. It's a family porridge. And it is, actually has done much better. It was our poor relative before, but COVID actually has kind of changed that because of the need to maintain good health, build immunity. So we have seen a, a huge demand now for nutritious porridges now. How oh, interesting. And just over the last 12 months, 18 months, you've seen the market change. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's interesting. I've got to say, if we hadn't had the fortified porridge, I think we would have been really badly hit. Uh, we do very, very well with schools. Easy noodles are so well loved about school children. But as you know, last year, school was out for almost six to seven months. And so we saw volumes painfully slow down for the noodle brand. And then we saw very differently on the cereal, on the porridge, because what we saw was international and local NGOs doing emergency relief programs. So we would basically put it in a big sack for people to then distribute. We do it for retail in a very nice box, but we can also do it for programs. And that's how we, we survived. We were able to pivot for those months when we, it was very slow on the noodle side to support efforts from government and international local NGOs in their work. And it has carried forward. It's, and, you know, people are doing the very best in this time, um, supporting people in their communities, local orphanages. So we do, we're a small business and so we're happy to do two or three sacks to a small NGO and 30,000 bags to somebody else. Wow. So you've got two markets. You've got the convenience for the urban youth with the easy noodles, I'm assuming. And yes. then you've got relief food for people, literally refugees and, and others who are struggling. And you see that Gosh, market I'm... is not just sort of refugees and those who are struggling. Even you want to walk into a local supermarket. You're asking, is this good for my children? Is this really good for me? Yeah. So we, we're making it available in retail as well. You know, reducing on the sugars, you know, really thinking about uh, how to make products better and at affordable prices, which is really, really key right now. As you know, lots of incomes are very strained. And that's been the change, has it, in the last 18 months, that the market is demanding now more nutritious food and much more health conscious. I mean, I think it's always been there. I think the aspect for Africa, uh, Zambia in particular, has been affordability. So a Zambian yeah. mother would always want the very best for her child to give good energy, boost your brain power, etc. The problem has been, number one, accessibility. They can't find those products. Or two, they're too expensive because many of them may be imported and therefore out yeah. of reach of many people. 
And also because of the lack of understanding, I mean, so uh, a nutritious food does not necessarily need to be an import or something in a box. So your local vegetables, your sweet potatoes, you know, you name it, things we are actually already familiar with are actually already good for you, but we're not reinforcing the message around nutrition, around varied nutrition. And as you know, for many countries in Southern Africa, we tend to eat the same thing, a maize porridge, which is very high in carbohydrates, but nothing else. And that's something we've been doing for many, many years. And it's taking away valuable nutrition that our children need, our elderly need, our sick need as well. So it's really, for us as Java, we look to make food accessible so you can find something that is good for you. You can afford it. And this is what I do on the advocacy side. We are very much present as a local producer around nutrition discussions so that money is put in the right place. There is a lot of discussion around nutrition worldwide and sometimes not put in the right places because they don't really understand the local context how to speak to the mother today, you know, what is important to mom today, very different from what it was, you know, 15 years ago. Mother is working now. How do we help her to work and then cook well for her children? So those are the things that we at Java try to share our voice on as well uh, and to make sure that money, both government as well as uh, international money is really going to the right places. I wanted to ask you, if I may, a few questions on the advocacy side. You've worked not just in Zambia in the way that you've just described, sort of educating consumers about nutrition, but you've worked at a, at a continental and global level, and your views and, and experience are sought there. Tell us a little bit about how, and maybe I'm asking to make big general, sweeping generalizations here, but how the challenge of tackling malnourishment and, and malnutrition is progressing on a, perhaps a global level or, or a continental level. It's really interesting. And I've got to say, I've been part of this for maybe five years now. And in the beginning, it was really difficult because it was a small voice coming from the continent and I was private yeah. sector, right? So many a time you think of malnutrition really being a governmental problem, as well as maybe international NGOs in the UN. It's, it's really for them to sort out malnutrition. The reality is right now, many, many people around the world go into a supermarket or into a shop which is owned by private sector or people who are not government or NGOs to buy products. And on the African continent and maybe in Asia, you find a lot of these shops are actually SMEs, right? So when I first joined the, what they're calling the Scaling Up Nutrition Business Network, was really to remind people that you cannot just talk about business being involved in the fight against nutrition unless you include the voices of the SMEs, because the SMEs ultimately are feeding people. And if you're not involving them in how to change habits or to, to create nutritious foods or just to change certain things, you're not going to win this fight, right? So it was in the beginning very difficult to be, you know, the little guy amongst very big names. And then big names are like Nestle, big names are like DSM, you know, really, really big names who are, been, who are really pushing the dial on nutrition. But, you know, after a while, I think people very, very much realized that things were not going to change unless you brought everyone at the party, whether it was civil society, whether it was government, you also had to have business at the table and to really listen to the challenges and simple things that are on challenges. It's cheaper to actually produce a sweet or, or corn puffs or chips than it is to produce a fortified porridge. Right. And then you ask yeah. yourself why. And then it's a discussion with government to say, you know, if you want to achieve a nutrition goal, we have to really address how you tax raw materials for nutrition or how we can reduce the cost of business for those businesses who are producing nutritious foods. 
in order for us to get people to want to produce more goods, but also affordability factor. Because everyone says, oh, nutrition is really expensive. It doesn't have to be if we all work together, right? So I think that was really important to be part of the discussion at a global level. And it's, this discussion is not just Africa, right? About yeah. why why you need to trust business, why you need to bring them into conversation to address this nutrition challenge. And, you know, in some cases, private sector have not been the best partner. I mean, there's some civil society who believe that actually we're the core of nutrition problems, you know, obesity, even our, the way we market our goods, we mislead the consumer. But I think, in my opinion, there's a way that you can address this to make sure there are transparent rules and regulation about how you use the word nutritious, when you can call your product nutritious, how you can deal with misleading advertising, you know, things like that. But I think it involves engagement and which is what has been happening at a global level. However, I say this, then COVID came. And of course, COVID has also shifted a lot of agendas and a lot of money because of the immediate public health crisis that COVID has. And nutrition or malnutrition is a lifetime problem, right? So if you're not fed when you're two, you only see the impacts of that when you're 12, right? So you can imagine to ensure that we have enough funding going towards malnutrition interventions, it's really hard given the, the, the crisis, the pandemic we're going through. But I think uh, the voices are strong and you know, we're keeping on pushing and hoping that we'll continue. It's not easy, definitely. It's, the, it's not an easy fight, but it's a really important agenda for any country on, on the continent, in the world actually. You touched on obesity there as you were talking about nutrition. I picked up on that because I'm just halfway through reading John Elkington's book, Green Swans. I'd recommend it to any of our listeners. He talks about a number of sort of wicked crises in the world, one of which is obesity. And I had no appreciation until I read it in his book. But the, the scale of the overweight and obesity problem, which is really a very new phenomenon because not so long ago, much of the world was hungry. Well, we've been pretty successful in addressing the hunger challenge. We've still got some way to go, but pretty successful. But I'm astounded to read that in Africa alone, the number of overweight children under five has increased by nearly 25 percent. That's one in you four. Know what that, yeah, that's, it is crazy. But you know why that is? Is because the, what is uh, available and affordable for mothers who are feeding their kids? That's what. That's just the biggest problem. Well, I have more uh, options, more nutritious options, which are affordable. There's only bread, or as you know, a maize drink called mahewa, which is really big in Southern mm. Africa. If that's the only thing that's available, which she can afford, that's what she's going to give her kid, right? We need to really figure out how we can get more processes such as myself to produce more affordable but nutritious foods. And we can only do that if we work together with government, because we still battle with things around the cost of production. So I just pass it on. If my inputs are dollar based and it's depreciation and if my time I'm still paying tax on a nutritious product, then, you know, you, you, we're not going to achieve what we want. But there are many ways to skin a cat. You know, I can produce the product and then government will zero rate it the way we do it with with infant cereal, where you do not pay VAT in order for it to remain affordable. But it's a reality. So there's also so there's hidden. They call it hidden hunger. Right. Because you don't think it's hunger, but there's hunger because they're getting they're just eating empty calories. Yeah. You're referring to the, the importance of the partnership between industry and, and government. This not being just the preserve of government to tackle. Like most things, right? Yeah. It cannot, one thing, right, and we, we, we appreciate even the fight against COVID, it can, we cannot get rid of it if we don't all work together. 
To what degree, I mean, in your own context in Zambia, have you had a, a responsive government when it comes to issues of nutrition, issues perhaps around labelling and, and education? Is it a priority? Is it seen as a priority? So I think it's definitely on the agenda, right? I think it's they with Zambia in particular, there are a lot of competing um, problems, as you know, and this definitely has been on the agenda. Uh, actually, running out, we have a lot of support coming out of the vice president's office, and definitely saying the right things, including actually putting into place a new nutrition act, right? As always, the proof is in the pudding. We on the private sector side are are, are still encouraged. We're hoping that to see more activity after the elections come through. But I think people see it um, and, and also become a very urban country, meaning a lot of people are moving from the rural areas into the cities. And that means they cannot eat what they grow because there's nowhere to grow food. So they're really relying on us as uh, the processors in the supermarkets to eat. It's ever more important right now to make sure people are eating the right foods. It's, or else you have hungry people. And you know what hungry people, what happens to hungry people? <laughs> we know what happens to hungry people, particularly on the eve of an election. Politicians will be keen to steer clear of hungry people. <laughs> I wanted to move away from the nutrition theme for a bit and talk about the challenges of, of setting up a business from scratch. You talked about the early stages, writing your business plan, being advised to just get on with it. What has presented perhaps some of the biggest challenges for you in growing Java Foods? I think being a woman in a very male-dominated industry has been very difficult in Zambia and even retail and distribution. Mm. And I just thought it's you just walk in someone's office and you have a really good product and then it'll be on a shelf and no issues. And I realized very quickly that it is really a, still very much an old boys club. They take product from who they believe in and they pay them quicker than everybody else. And sometimes you don't even get the opportunity. So I think my first real slap in the face was that. And having been coming from a corporate environment where I was respected for the table, although it was very difficult, but I was respected for my educational background, my experience, then to really fight to be taken seriously. And I, I was saying just yesterday to a friend of mine that I remember being on a plane coming back to Zambia. And a very prominent man asked me, what do you do now? And I said, oh, yeah, I run a, a food processing business. And then he said, what's the name of your restaurant? And, you know, I didn't know whether to cry or to be sad. This is strange. I mean, he, he would never have thought as a woman I would be running a manufacturing business. And if it was a man, the question would have been different. So I think the second big one was really raising adequate financing. Of course, in the first few years, you burn a lot of money because you're really trying to make sure the business plan is scalable or it's actually a viable business. And you, you burn money just because you just don't know how, right? And I remember it took about two and a half years for me to get an overdraft. And I had to secure the overdraft on a fixed asset, which was a house I owned. And it was like $100,000. And at the time was Christmas because it was a lot of money for a small business. But then as we grew two or three years later, the bank still would not give me more money, despite the fact mm -hmm. that you could see revenue increasing. Uh, and of course, we were underfunded. I mean, that $100,000 secured on an asset could not fund the business which was growing, right? So I felt mm. I had to fight for everything. I had to, even, even with numbers on pieces of paper, even with an audited account, you know, it still was not good enough to get people to believe in the concept, in the business and in your management of the business. And that was really difficult. 
you kind of wish sometimes that you could write yourself your own check. And sometimes I, I, I thought about, well, maybe I should continue to work as a lawyer longer to fund the business. But the reality is I wasn't going to be able to focus on really growing the business had I not done it 24-7 and fully committed to it. But I do believe that it took us longer because we weren't able to raise the financing in the amounts that we needed to grow the business that much quicker. And I think that was very much the challenge. And I think the third one I could speak about is about getting the right team. Zambia, a very small country, also very difficult with respect to talent. You do have very educated people who come at a very high cost. And then you have everybody else, which means you have to really invest your time and your money in really building skills. And when you're a small business as a startup, it's really difficult to do that. And so one, you take on a lot of the things yourself to try to be everything to all people. And you know what happens after that. You just are not able to mm -hmm. achieve it. Uh, you kind of burn out and you know, to have a burnt out founder is never a good thing. But also, too, it takes a long time for the business to reach where it's going to get to. And one thing I know right now, almost being in 10 years, will be 10 years next year, is that we've been able to grow in the last maybe three to four years because we have a really good, dedicated team of people who are qualified, but who also believe in the story of Java. And I'm really grateful to the team who have stuck with me through my crazy ideas and really believed when I, we had, I just said, I have no money now, but when I have money, it'll be great. <laughs> so I'm really grateful to them. Oh. And you've managed to find time also to serve on the boards of various other companies. Yes. Tell us about your thought process there. I know from my own experience, just how demanding founding and, and, and running a business can be on one's time and energy levels. How do you find time to serve on these other boards and how do you select those companies that, that you want to serve on? Sure. I'm really grateful to have been given the opportunity. I think some of it has been the fact that I had came from a really strong legal career. So people recognized mm. where I was coming from and were very happy to appoint me to some of the positions, particularly in the early days. And in the early days, I, I, I've got to say, I just took what anyone would give me because the point was to uh, establish a track record, to say that you've been a non-exec before and in various sectors. So in the early days, it was really exhausting because you were in different sectors and some of them very small businesses, which took time and took a lot of your time as well, but it was also important because it funded me. You know, they also say when you're a founder in the early stages, you better have multiple sources of income. So it really did help feed me at home when I when really I was starting Java and we really had no money to, to pay a salary for myself. But as things have obviously gone on, I am now obviously very clear about where I can add value to businesses. I tend to focus my attention on listed businesses, which are obviously well run and actually probably demand less of your time because they need you at particular times. And they're very clear why they need their board for or the role of the board. So I do find whilst it still takes a lot of time, it's great to sit on big businesses in certain key sectors and you can learn how these businesses are run. You can learn about processes and uh, systems, how they deal with financial crises and risks. And for me, it's been a great learning to be a part of uh, corporate boards for businesses which are growing or are owned by big multinationals. And you can learn about how they run their, their businesses. So I have shared a lot of the smaller ones, passed them on to other women who are also trying to get more board exposure mm -hmm. and now focus on sort of larger boards, more international. So maybe one or two Zambian boards, but now looking at cross-continental boards as well. Wonderful. And tell us a little bit about female representation, representation of women in senior management positions in those companies that, that you've been working with, or maybe even on the board. 
I'm assuming it's improved since, since you relocated home to Zambia almost 10 years ago. Well, we're still fighting, right? I think yeah. uh, female representation, not just in management, but even on boards is still a very key issue. Um, and I think we speak about much more about transparency in the process around recruitment, of course, also even recruitment onto boards. And you'll see for many big companies, they are actually now sharing how they, they nominate directors. There's a transparent process. I think what we are seeing in Zambia is a lot more educated women coming in um, certain key sectors. So financial services, uh, the legal profession, and where you can no longer avoid <laughs> promoting women, right? Even in the civil service here in Zambia, we're seeing a lot more educated, very highly motivated, and therefore um, have very high positions. But we're still behind. Definitely different from when my mother was, you know, a young lady. There's a lot of progress that still needs to go ahead. And it's not just on women, by the way. I think people assume just because there's a woman on the board that she's going to change everything. It's the company that needs to change. I think having women on boards is the first step or having a woman in the C-suite is the first step. But she cannot change a whole business herself. The whole company needs to think gender diversity, to see the advantage of having gender diversity across the board and what it brings. And when you have that appreciation, then you have the change. Thanks, Monica, for, for sharing that. I've got one question on, on your sort of style, management style, if I may. You're the founder of Java Foods, and therefore the vision of the company is very much your vision. I'm wondering, is it a sort of moonshoot vision that you have, or having now been exposed to the challenges of operating manufacturing business in Zambia, are you more conservative and more incremental in your approach to management? I wonder where you sit on that spectrum. I think you're absolutely right. I think when I first started the business, I was, and also coming from Nigeria, really, really aggressive, really just pushing it along. You, you must have deliverables. I don't understand. Yes. Why you have not delivered, why you did not work all night to deliver, right? And then realizing, obviously, that uh, Zambians have a different pace. You know, you speak to them very differently to, to achieve a certain result. It's much more collaborative. They must understand why they're doing it. And which means you as a manager must take the time to be much more, to much, much more involving, you know, to solicit advice and so it has changed and it has you say it's incremental um and i've, I've had to uh, in order to achieve a result <laughs> i've had to change the way in which i speak the way in which i communicate i think sometimes you have to break it down reach, achieve a result and then move on to the next one you know you and maybe sometimes that's why things are a little bit slower done in southern africa because that's how we we do things if you want to achieve the results you have to understand the environment in which you work in and is that is that an environment that is generally getting easier for entrepreneurs like yourself? Hmm. So I, I think, again, it's I, I've seen a real shift. Like when I first came, I know people who were trying to set up um, innovation hubs and everyone just thought they were hackers, right? They were like, I don't understand what these mm. kids are doing. Are you sure it's all legit, etc.? And now they are like the best things since sliced bread. Everyone is talking about them, etc. So I feel that... Everything has its time. We might be a little bit slower than others, but it depends on the sector you're in. It depends on what you're doing. And sometimes your great idea is still a great idea. It just might be too soon, right? 
but it's still very difficult generally for entrepreneurs to uh, startups in generally financing technical expertise just high cost of doing business i mean there's so many licenses you have to get to legitimately mm. run a business in zambia just people just don't do it because they're like why should i bother it's going to take me 50,000 kwacha and i actually need that 50,000 to you know pay my developer or something so i think we do definitely need to think about reducing the costs of uh, running businesses in order to have more people actually formalize the business otherwise you have too many people doing things in the back of their yard nobody paying tax and nobody really understanding whether or not zambia is one of those economies which is booming because you can't measure what people are doing well very interesting to hear i wonder if you could put a sort of a figure on the quantum of time that your business spends on dealing with permits and approvals and and, and red tape is it, Ooh, is it a significant a lot. <laughs> yeah. and you know the food sector right so there isn't a regulator and inspector comes whether it's for emissions whether it's for water whether it's for public health uh, weights you know you just name it <laughs> they're there right yeah. you actually have someone whose job it is to deal with these people and when i was when we were a small business i mean literally they would be in my office i knew most of them but now i don't even see them i just see the cars drive in and out but the thing about it when they know your, your ducks are in a row they know not to waste too much time because they know these guys have already got that sorted out unless it's a new license and regulation we don't know about but we've actually agreed and made it a, a conscious effort to make sure we're completely all everything is in, in, in place including our taxes so we pay our tax we we have someone that's her job to make sure yeah. we understand whether it's health insurance whether it's paye whether it's a, there's a new skills development all these things we understand them and understand when we need to pay them and how we need to pay them Oh, well, thank you for sharing these insights, Monica. It's been such a pleasure to, to reconnect with you after, after so many years. And great to hear about your success and for you to be able to share that with our audience and some of the challenges of being um, a female entrepreneur in Zambia. But these are challenges that uh, people all across the continent would be able to relate to entrepreneurs um, setting sure. out. Thank you for that. Congratulations on all the work that you're doing in trying to promote more awareness about the importance of nutrition not just in Zambia, but globally in the work that you do there. And um, yes, thank you for um, sharing those insights with our audience. Thank you for having me. It was great to chat. Yeah. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.